From the stuff your mother never told you to the stuff your doctor never learned, On Health is what happens when a midwife plus a Yale-trained MD shares about all things women's health, from periods to menopause, sex to reproductive health politics, motherhood to mental health. Join me for taboo-busting conversations that demystify and destigmatize our bodies, all while bridging the gap between conventional medicine and wellness. Along the way, we'll be exploring the science and wisdom of how our bodies work, what makes us well, what gets in the way, and how we can live our best lives on our terms. When it comes to women's health and well-being, there's nothing we won't talk about. The new medicine for women is here. I'm Dr. Aviva Ram. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the second part of our epic conversation about alcohol and all things women's hormones. Last week, I talked about the impact of alcohol on our hormones in general, and also the impact of alcohol on our internal ecosystems, our gut microbiome, our circadian rhythm, our ability of our liver to break down, detoxify, and eliminate estrogens, leading to even increased rates of synthetic estrogens in our system when we drink and are on the pill or on hormone replacement therapy. So if you're just tuning in for the first time, you can jump in and listen from where we are or er, hit pause, jump back to the last episode and give yourself a two for a treat today. I always love that. Like when I'm watching a movie. Okay. So on Saturday mornings when I was a kid, I loved watching Creature Feature and Chiller Theater. I loved scary movies when I was a kid. And that back-to-back episode on a rainy Saturday morning was so delicious, especially when I was at my grandparents' house, curled up in their big bed, and my grandma was making breakfast. I love that feeling. It's a rainy day here in the Berkshires where I live with unseasonably warm temperatures. It should be snow, but I have this beautiful gray mist that I'm looking at over the mountain across the way from me. And I'm cozying in here with you and ready to dive in and talk more about alcohol and our hormones. So we're going to pick up with where I left off last time. Last time I left off speaking about the impact of hormones on puberty and our menstrual cycles. Today we're going to take that the next step and talk about fertility, which also naturally brings in ovulation. We can't get pregnant if we don't ovulate. So alcohol and fertility, what's the deal? Well, interestingly, most studies, and this is great news if you like to have a drink now and then, find that light drinking, now remember, moderate drinking is a drink or so a day, no more than seven drinks a week, no more than three drinks at a time. Light drinking, I'm defining as one to three drinks a week at the most, and really not even every single week. So most studies find that light drinking, just a few drinks per week, for example, does not impact fertility mic drop. So if you're reading on some wellness website or some fertility website that you should never have a drink if you want to get pregnant, that's really not what the data supports. A 2009 study published in the journal Epidemiology followed 18,555 married women without a history of infertility for eight years as they attempted to become or became pregnant. Diet was measured twice a week. So this was a good study during this period and prospectively related 
to the incidence of ovulatory disorder in fertility. So not getting pregnant because you're not ovulating. Now, that's just one reason for not getting pregnant, but it is one of the more common ones. And I want to just really highlight something. This is kind of like a teaching moment here that's really important. So drum roll, please. Only 50% of fertility challenges happen in the female. Half of them are happening in the male. And I'm not talking about it today. Alcohol can absolutely have an impact on male reproductive health, sperm production, and also erectile function, right? Alcohol may disinhibit women and men. With women, it may lead to some increased desire for sex, but men, it can actually get in the way of that erection. So that's not so great for fertility either. So anyway, this almost 19,000 women were followed for eight years as they were trying to become pregnant or became pregnant. Their diet was measured. And the researchers who included Walter Willett and Jorge Chavarro, two of the biggest women's health study and nutrition researchers, looked at the data during this time and found that there were 438 reports of ovulatory disorder in fertility during this follow-up period. And alcohol intakes were found to be unrelated whatsoever. In a study of 567 women seeking fertility care at the Massachusetts General Hospital who participated in the Environment and Reproductive Health Study published in the medical journal Fertility and Sterility, a huge medical journal, low to moderate intakes of alcohol were unrelated to ovarian reserve as measured by something called antral follicle count or AFC which is a well-accepted biomarker of ovarian reserve. Ovarian reserve means the capacity of the ovaries to continue to produce ovum from the follicles that are there, or a reduction in follicles. And this was in a cohort of women who were actually seeking fertility care, so they were already having some fertility challenges. And there was no association between their fertility challenge and their alcohol intake, at least as measured in this study. So the bottom line is. If a glass of wine is part of your getting warmed up for sex ritual, if it's part of your romance, there should be no harm in enjoying that once in a while. However, heavier drinking and binge drinking, and remember, binge drinking can be just having four drinks at any one time. So if you drink four drinks on New Year's Eve, that's binge drinking. Chronic binge drinking is when you're doing it all the time. And then there's binge drinking on top of moderate drinking. So there are lots of combinations, as I talked about in the previous episode. These are another story for fertility challenges, as may be heavier drinking just after ovulation. A study published in Reproduction, another major journal, in 2017, looked at alcohol and fecundability. Great word, right? Fecundability. The chance of becoming pregnant in a single menstrual cycle. It analyzed data from 413 women ages 19 to 41. Of note, these women were mainly white, non-Hispanic, and married with some college education, who completed daily diaries on alcohol intake including the number of drinks and type, beer, wine, or liquor, for a maximum of 19 months of follow-up. During this time, the women's monthly cycle phases were calculated with a calendar-based method, and they also provided urine samples monthly to assess pregnancy status. Over the course of the study, 133 women became pregnant. 
Data comparing the outcomes between drinkers and non-drinkers showed that the greater a woman's alcohol consumption, the lower her chance she had of conceiving. Non-drinkers had a 41.3 chance of conceiving. Remember, this is in that one menstrual cycle. Light to moderate drinkers had around a 32% chance of conceiving. And heavy drinkers, it dropped down to 27.2, exactly. Further, the researchers discovered that moderate and heavy drinking in that post-ovulation phase decreased the likelihood by 44 and 49%, respectively, depending on how much drinking it was. So moderate drinkers, 44%, heavy drinkers, 49%, where this drop was not seen in non-drinkers. This same study also found some evidence that heavy drinking prior to ovulation may also have an impact on fecundability, and that each additional day of binge drinking around ovulation and in the luteal phase, so that second half of the menstrual cycle, especially right after ovulation, was associated with a 19% decrease in conception, whereas this impact was not found with heavier drinking earlier in the menstrual cycle, which is not to condone heavier drinking earlier in the menstrual cycle, just to say that heavier drinking, as I talked about in part one of this podcast, may have a greater impact in that periovulatory period. So when FSH and LH are going up, when estrogen is peaked at the first half of the cycle, and then at and just after ovulation. Additionally, menstrual cycle length wasn't changed by drinking at any time during the menstrual cycle. So what's going on then if the menstrual cycle length wasn't changed? Well, the interference seems to have to do with an alcohol-triggered surge in estradiol levels right around ovulation, which may affect conception or implantation, possibly both. You know, it can happen one way in one cycle, another way in another cycle. The authors also state that one limitation of their study is that unlike in the large study I mentioned earlier with the 18,000 and change women, those women were trying to get pregnant. In this study, the women were not actively trying to conceive. So nobody was specifically trying to get pregnant around their ovulatory cycle. So it's unclear what would have happened with the data had that been the case and had that been the case consistently across the board. The extent to which moderate to heavy and binge drinking currently or when we were younger may impact our fertility down the road is less clear. Some studies have found that long-term moderate alcohol consumption may lead to diminished ovarian reserve, a marker of fertility in childbearing age women. In one study, moderate alcohol consumption was associated with significantly decreased ovarian volume and number of ovarian antral follicles. Further, binge, heavy, and even chronic moderate alcohol intake may deplete important nutrients, for example, folic acid needed for healthy ova, and also influence ovulation, which has been shown in some studies and studies done over six months to be a problem. It's not consistent that ovulation is impacted, but in some studies it does show that it can be. My recommendation for anyone trying to conceive is that there is compelling evidence to suggest cutting back on alcohol intake before you try to conceive. And I'm talking about in the three months prior. That's a really good preconception window. In my medical practice, when I'm working with fertility clients, fertility patients, 
I really optimally would love for them to have a year of planning their conception, both partners, if there are two partners in the couple involved, it may just be a woman coming to seek my support or two women and only one is involved in the contribution of genetic material at that time. Although I think getting everyone on board in the couple is great for healthy eating and healthy lifestyle. And then at the minimum three months, it's really important to keep to no more, in my opinion, than one to two servings a week at most. And make sure to also take a prenatal vitamin because that contains folic acid, which may be protective against some of the harmful impact of alcohol on cellular function, DNA, and methylation, which is not only important for healthy ovulation, but also healthy ova, which means healthy embryo, but also health throughout our life cycles, particularly protection against breast cancer. I also want to reiterate something I said in the last episode of this series, which is that a lot of the damage that comes from chronic alcohol use, except for during puberty, we just don't know about what happened in puberty, particularly with bone growth, for example. But we know that some of the damage that happens with alcohol consumption is reversible. So that's another reason to give yourself some time to not only get pregnant, but to back off on alcohol and do the repair work. So get that prenatal vitamin on board, do things that I talk about. I have a whole chapter in my book, Hormone Intelligence, strictly on ovarian revitalization and repair for those who are trying to get pregnant, want to increase ovum health, but also for women who may be showing early signs of perimenopause or have ovulatory dysfunction. So that's a really critical chapter. And I'll have an upcoming podcast on that as well. But grab that book if you're wanting to repair your ovaries, do the whole plan. But then that one particular chapter is just gold. All forms of alcohol should absolutely be avoided in pregnancy. While there may be some who consider this to be controversial, because in some countries, some women continue to enjoy a glass of wine during pregnancy, or you might hear somebody say, well, our grandmothers drank and our mothers and we're just fine. Fetal alcohol syndrome is a very real phenomenon. And also, that's the most extreme expression genetically with overconsumption of alcohol in periconception and first trimester. But there is potential damage that happens along the way. Again, we can offset this. So if you were drinking and you got pregnant, first of all, it takes that first couple of weeks for there to even be implantation so you can relax if you were drinking during that time between when you ovulated and that first week after your missed period, you can just exhale. But even if you had some alcohol in that first trimester before you realized you were pregnant, just you know, try to take a deep breath. Just chances are nothing's going to happen. But whatever you can do protectively, let's do that. In my opinion, the expression better safe than sorry when it comes to not drinking when we're pregnant is nowhere better applied than here. And if you are pregnant, and even if you haven't started taking your folic acid, please do. But my recommendation is that all young women, the minute they start getting sexually active, go on a multivitamin that has folic acid or methylfolate in it is really critical. 50% of pregnancies in the United States are unplanned. They happen in teenagers. They happen in our 20s. They happen in our 40s, too. And so being on that multivitamin or that prenatal vitamin with folic acid is really important because that neural tube formation happens before we even realize we're pregnant a lot of the time. And being on it in that first 28 days of pregnancy is critical. So getting on it now is a great protective thing you can do for yourself. How much folic acid or methylfolate? 
400 to 800 milligrams in the prenatal vitamin of either or a combination of both. So what if you have PCOS or endometriosis? Do you have to quit drinking? Well, when it comes to PCOS, no causative correlations have been found to date in the medical literature. But as with other aspects of alcohol and our hormones, the data is very limited. Insulin resistance and blood sugar imbalances play a major role in the etiology of PCOS for the majority of women with this condition, leading to the increases in testosterone that cause many of the hallmark symptoms of PCOS, the cystic acne, the androgenic hair loss from the top of our heads, the hair in unwanted places, and other symptoms like that irregular menstrual cycles not ovulating. The studies I mentioned in the first part of this series on blood sugar suggest that from a strictly blood sugar perspective, low to moderate alcohol intake might not be harmful for women with PCOS. But this doesn't address the individual variations that may actually happen in blood sugar metabolism in women with PCOS who are already predisposed to diabetes, for which drinking alcohol is a risk factor. And it also doesn't address the separate potential hormonal impacts of alcohol on estrogen and testosterone levels, which are disrupted in PCOS, gut health, and inflammation, all of which independently and collectively impact women with PCOS. Some studies, though the data is limited and contradictory, also have shown an increase in testosterone and also DHES, the precursor to testosterone. In one study, this was seen in premenopausal women with the consumption of 0.5 grams per kilogram of alcohol and may increase androgenization and should be explored more in women with PCOS or in women who are at high risk for developing it. So your teenage daughter or your daughter in her 20s, or even 30s, you know, doesn't know that you as a mom have PCOS. Let her know. Let her know that she has this risk factor. We're not psyching her out. We're just really letting her know. And in my book, Hormone Intelligence, and also on my website, in articles, I talk about some of these predisposing factors, and there's a list of them. So if you have those predisposing factors, or you have some early symptoms that may suggest PCOS, it may be a good idea to make abstaining or very low alcohol intake, kind of your own personal policy from the get-go. There's also some really interesting research into what is being called EAFLD, endogenous alcohol fatty liver disease, as a possible root cause of PCOS. So many of you have may have heard of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease or fatty liver disease that comes from alcohol drinking. It's a high risk for chronic alcohol use. What happens is that in PCOS, women are already at higher risk of developing fatty liver disease. This research is saying that fatty liver disease itself may also be a predisposing factor for developing PCOS and that what is happening in a whole roundabout biochemical way is that the body is actually endogenously producing its own alcohol. And that that alcohol being produced in the setting of this fatty liver disease is creating PCOS. So to me, I'm sort of connecting the dots going, well, if endogenous production of alcohol can lead to PCOS, what happens if we deliberately 
drink alcohol. So it's still evolving and we don't know what this all means yet. But we definitely do know that heavier drinking is a problem. It's associated with increased depression, diabetes, liver and heart disease, all of which are already increased risks for women with poorly treated PCOS. So please learn more about PCOS. It's way underdiagnosed. One in eight to 10 women in the US have it. Hormone intelligence, articles on my website, other podcasts, I talk about what to look for, how to know if you have it, how to get diagnosed. If you are in the stages of having had PCOS for a while or you're first getting diagnosed with it, I do highly recommend at least three months of abstaining from drinking. This is just what I do in my medical practice. And it really makes a difference because we want to peel back the layers of the onion on any of the things that may be contributing causes. So then you can kind of get more of a sense of what's going on. And I'll talk about that a little bit more in just a minute after I talk about endometriosis, which is a complex and chronic condition in which there is dysregulation in the interrelationship between the endocrine or hormonal and immune systems. It's now recognized, like PCOS, to have multifactorial, genetic, environmental, and internal ecosystem causes in that many lifestyle factors may mediate or exacerbate the condition. And alcohol is one of these. As we've talked about, particularly in moderate to higher amounts, alcohol can increase inflammation and oxidative stress through a variety of pathways. And I talk about this at length in part one of this series. And in doing so, it may alter the gut microbiota composition and cause dysbiosis, may lead to leaky gut, may increase estrogen levels, particularly if they're already elevated. And all of these play a role in endometriosis, which is aggravated by high estrogen levels, aggravated by dysbiosis, and aggravated by inflammation. In fact, some newer studies are suggesting that both PCOS and endometriosis, which are totally separate conditions, although they can occur in the same person, one person can have both, may actually start long before we're even born, when we're in our mom's wombs, not another reason to blame our moms for things that they had no idea, but inflammation or dysbiosis that may even happen during that time when our moms were pregnant with us or blood sugar dysregulation may alter our genetic predispositions that make us more susceptible to then later factors that come on when we hit puberty and then also aggravated by environmental exposures like the ubiquitous presence of herbicides and pesticides, things like that in our environment, endocrine disrupting chemicals, and then also these lifestyle factors. What we know, again, is that like PCOS, we want to peel back the layers of the onion and eliminate any contributing factors that we possibly can so that we can quiet systemic inflammation, that we can help those estrogen levels reset to normal that we can get liver metabolism back online, that we can reset the gut microbiome and heal leaky gut. So trying to do those things while we're continuing to drink is a little bit like pouring gasoline on a fire. We want to not pour more gasoline on the fire and we want to cool that fire, keep that fire nicely tucked into the fireplace, not escaping all over the room where it's causing problems, right? A little bit of inflammation is part of how we fight infection, et cetera, et cetera. But we want to calm it 
so that it's not contributing to these conditions. We also know that endometriosis is commonly accompanied by digestive symptoms, which alcohol worsens, systemic inflammation, pain, and depression, all of which alcohol also worsens. Alcohol, particularly for women with PCOS, may be part of a vicious pain, stress, inflammation cycle for women in that the pain causes us to be stressed and it causes chronic stress for women with endometriosis. That stress makes us want to drink for that immediate relief, but then it causes inflammation that then exacerbates the pain, the stress, et cetera. So that vicious cycle goes round and round. And of note, this is really interesting, a 2021 study that found that one of the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic was an increase of alcohol consumption for 29.2% of women with endometriosis, women being treated for it. Data on endometriosis and alcohol in the medical literature is sparse and contradictory. Again, it's really shameful. One in 10 women have this. <laughs> All women menstruate. We're 50% of the population. We menstruate till we are in menopause and then we're in menopause. It's really shocking how limited and poor quality the data is. But a meta-analysis, which means one group of researchers looked at all the data that they felt had good criteria, good enough studies, and they did find an increased risk of endometriosis among alcohol users. But the authors concluded that the research findings were borderline statistical significance. And they had done previous research that had found that the estimates were higher. And in this research, they found that the estimates were a little bit lower. So they did find a correlation. What it means that it's not statistically significant means that it's not overwhelming or it wasn't much more compared to other groups. Again, my recommendation, like with PCOS, is to ideally see how it feels to you and monitor your symptoms over three months of completely abstaining. Three months because that gives you a good beat on your symptoms over several consecutive menstrual cycles and allows time for your body to reset a bit. If you personally notice symptom improvements or resolution, then make your decision on whether or how much alcohol to drink according to that. And regardless, keep drinking light. Even one to three drinks a week is more than ideal with these conditions, in my opinion. Certainly no more than that. All right, so we've covered menstrual cycles, fertility, puberty, endometriosis and PCOS. Let's go on to what is an incredible natural phase of our life cycles once we get past all of those things, and that's menopause. The hallmark of menopause is a shift from the potent form of estrogen, estradiol, that's been our companion form of estrogen from the time we entered puberty, to a less potent form called estrone. As this shift occurs, not only do we stop ovulating and menstruating, but we lose some of the lubrication and tissue plumpness that the estradiol provides literally in our skin, our vaginal tissue, our breast tissue, our joints, our tendons, and more. Now, I'm going to share a lot of the symptoms of menopause, but I just want to say as a menopausal woman, there are lots of advantages to menopause too, like the, I don't give an F. I'm just going to say an F because your kids might be listening. They can ask you about that, but I'm not going to say the word, but you know, just the, we don't give an F and we're just like in this amazing 
I've arrived state of our lives. I hope all of us get there much earlier. But if you're not, menopause is like, yeah, for that. We are like hot mamas. <laughs> Sometimes it feels that way too with hot flashes. And hot flashes are definitely one of the major symptoms that 60 to 80% of women experience. I'm going to talk more about those in a minute. But not just hot flashes. We're likely to experience sleep disturbances, mood swings, headaches and migraines, and other symptoms that can be minor or major. And importantly, our risks for bone, heart, brain, like dementia, and metabolic diseases go up, as do the risks of some forms of cancer. So it's important that we be extra tender to ourselves during these years, nourishing ourselves optimally, and staying away from those lifestyle choices that may negatively impact our health. And I hope even if you are in your 20s or 30s, you're listening to this part because it may be helpful for you to have this information tucked away for down the road. The choices we make in our 20s, 30s, and 40s actually medically and biologically impact how we experience menopause. And this also is relevant for your moms and your sisters and your aunties and your grandmas and your friends and your colleagues. So many women notice that as they enter their late 40s, just when they feel they've earned that glass of wine or three in the evening, their alcohol tolerance has plummeted. And even half a glass of wine may lead to headaches, disrupted sleep, depressed mood, and a hangover, even if they tolerated two glasses of wine three years ago. And they're exactly right. After we go through menopause, we metabolize alcohol differently than when we were younger. And the gender gap in alcohol metabolism becomes even wider, making us less able to drink the amount we could previously and making us even more susceptible to alcohol-related problems than men or premenopausal women. Women are also at greater risk of alcohol-related health problems, such as liver disease or heart disease, compared to men. Why do all these changes occur? And what does that mean for drinking in our menopausal years? Well, we don't tolerate alcohol as well for a number of reasons. One is that our muscle mass is replaced by fat tissue, which happens starting in our menopausal years. And the amount of water in our body goes down with age. This leads to a higher blood alcohol concentration when we drink. So imagine if you had a full cup of water and you poured an ounce of alcohol into it, or you had a half a cup or a quarter cup of water, and you poured an ounce of alcohol into it, right? The less fluid, the more concentration of alcohol. Additionally, your liver's ability to metabolize alcohol also declines with age, as does the rate of elimination of alcohol from the body. I also suspect that changes in the microbiome that occur with menopause may impact our hepatic alcohol metabolism and elimination. There's a really interesting connection between what's going on in the gut microbiome and the liver and the microbiome changes in menopause, the actual composition of it, and that this may unfavorably shift our ability to metabolize alcohol in our liver, as well as leading to the production of more inflammatory cytokines, as well as chemical products that are produced by the microbiome that may make us feel more unwell when we drink in menopause. Add to this poor sleep and cognitive and emotional changes that may occur from new onset depression in menopause, questioning our self-identity as we go through all these major changes, and just being at this major life juncture where often a lot of changes in our world are happening. Your kids might be going off to college at that time, for example. 
And it's easy to see why a glass of wine or a gin and tonic sounds especially appealing after a full day. But there's more to this than just the psycho-emotional changes going on that make us want to reward ourselves with alcohol. At the same time that we're going through these life changes and that our alcohol tolerance is going down, our physiologic desire to drink actually goes up, as does the immediate biological pleasure we get from having a drink. And this is really problematic because our risk of developing new onset alcoholism actually goes up during this phase of our life. A 2017 study, and again, this was before the pandemic, right? Drinking has gone up even more since the pandemic, found that binge drinking rates remained stable for men 60 years and older between 1997 and 2014 when the study was done. But women 60 years and older binge drank at steadily higher rates over that time period. And their rates increased by an average of 3.7% each year. So it's a really, really important time for us to be mindful of our alcohol intake and not just go for it, but really start to notice, are we having a tendency to want to drink more, giving ourselves a little bit more permission to drink more and keeping in mind that same amount of drinking that you did five years before menopause, three years before menopause may even itself be too much for you. Hot flashes, which I mentioned before, are also called vasomotor symptoms of menopause. And they're the most common symptom of menopause with 60 to 80% of women experiencing them. They often begin in late perimenopause when we're in our mid to late 40s. But remember, moderate to heavy drinking may actually push that back a little bit earlier. And they peak in early menopause when we're in our early mid 50s. For some women, they're a short-lived annoyance and then generally over unless they're triggered by something specific like stress or spicy foods or drinking. But for some women, they start early and last for as many as 15 years and may be severe, occurring 15, 20 times a day. And for a subset of women, they're really severe. Also, night sweats, which are a form of hot flashes that occur at night, can dramatically impact a woman's amount and quality of sleep. Even though they're so common, the data on hot flashes, like so much of the data on women's reproductive health in general and women's reproductive health and alcohol is conflicting. And it does appear to be highly variable and also dose dependent. That means based on how much you drink. So some studies have found that light drinking is actually associated with a lower risk of hot flashes night sweats, and even a lower risk of bone density loss, as well as having positive effects on blood sugar, insulin, and triglyceride levels, as I talked about in part one of this series. For example, a study of 732 women aged 45 to 54 years old in the United States found that current moderate or severe hot flashes were less frequent in women who consumed one drink per day or more compared with non-drinkers. A cohort study of 647 women found that those who drank greater than 12 drinks or more in the preceding year experienced a shorter duration of hot flashes than the women who drank less than 12 drinks in the past year. And a study of 755 perimenopausal women showed a favorable effect of light alcohol intake defined as no more than one to five drinks per week on the frequency of hot flashes compared with non-drinkers, suggesting a potential protective effect of light to moderate drinking, thought to be due to alcohol raising estrogen levels. Now, 
a few comments about this. One, there are other ways to improve our biological parameters that can prevent or reduce our risk of hot flashes. One is maintaining healthy estrogen levels. And one of the things that does that is actually gaining around five pounds in menopause if you were previously underweight. That extra weight can help with the aromatization of testosterone to estrogen, which I talked about in the previous episode. And that extra body fat becomes the place where we make estrogen when our ovaries are no longer making it. Another factor is that, as I talked about in the previous episode, light to moderate alcohol intake is more common amongst middle class, upper middle class, wealthier white people who have healthy diets and healthier exercise practices, all things that may also prevent hot flashes. So this is definitely not carte blanche to go out and just drink so that you keep your estrogen levels up. Also for women who already have elevated estrogen levels, and you can read Hormone Intelligence or look on my website or listen to my podcast where I talk about what that looks like in terms of symptoms, the increased estrogen might not be a good thing. The last thing I want to say about this is that note that one of these studies found that it was just 12 or more drinks in the preceding year. So that's one or two drinks a month, not one or three drinks a week. So keep all of that in mind. You can drink lightly if you have moderate healthy estrogen levels and you're you know, otherwise healthy hormonally, and it may be a little bit protective. On the other hand, at least one study has found that moderate and heavy consumption of alcohol may lead to earlier onset of vasomotor symptoms and that the effect was both dose-dependent and more likely to contribute to night sweats. Several studies have concluded that alcohol can act as an acute hot flash trigger which many of us know from experience. You drink and you feel warmer. If you're in menopause and you drink and you feel warmer, that can trigger a hot flash. And that women who drank more over time are more likely to be troubled by hot flashes. Most studies have found that excessive drinking is more likely to be associated with hot flashes. For example, a study done in Finland of 1,427 women who drank 192 grams of pure alcohol per week, so that's maybe 15 drinks a week, and another population-based study of both African-American and Caucasian premenopausal women found that a higher number of alcoholic beverages per week was linked to a significantly higher odds of developing hot flashes. The mechanisms thought to be related to alcohol increasing hot flashes include stimulation of the release of the neurotransmitter serotonin 5-HT as a stress response to alcohol. Remember, Alcohol acts as a body toxin, and that toxin requires the body to respond, to neutralize it. And one of those responses can be a stress response, releasing this neurotransmitter. Serotonin disturbs the body's thermoregulatory systems in the hypothalamus. Other alterations in the body's temperature regulatory centers by alcohol drinking may also occur, causing us to feel hotter and also having a lower threshold for sweating. And we also may have disruption of thermoregulation in the peripheral vasodilatory system. So our peripheral blood vessels dilate more readily, causing us to sweat. And also disruption by alcohol directly to the central nervous system, affecting our body's temperature regulatory ability. The reason for conflicting results may be due to different study populations, 
the fact that alcohol intake and hot flashes weren't always the primary reasons for the study. They were kind of secondary findings, so weren't given as much attention. And also variations in individual responses to alcohol. The bottom line is for you, if alcohol increases your hot flashes, if alcohol increases your sleep disturbance, if alcohol makes you feel blue or irritable or moody or not positively emotional as it does for me, my husband has actually said to me, Aviva, please don't drink that half a glass of wine because it just unleashes this beast of emotionality in me. And it's not just like suppressed stuff I'm not otherwise talking about. It's just this really kind of not happy, dark place. So for me, it's not a good go-to. And use those as messages from your body to moderate your intake or forgo alcohol altogether. And remember, if you are drinking more moderately, and absolutely if you're drinking heavily, it's not just the symptoms that we see, right? We don't see fatty liver disease happening. We don't see breast cancer happening. We don't see dementia happening. And these are all things that alcohol intake at a more moderate to heavier level may be triggering. Bone health is so important as we get older. Fractures, particularly hip fractures, pose a terrible risk for women. And they're not only one of the most common reasons we become dependent on others when we get much older, it's a reason that we're forced to live in care facilities and we have a 50% increased risk of mortality in the first year after a hip fracture. So starting to take care of your bones in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s is critical and it's never too late to start. Osteopenia is mild bone loss and osteoporosis is characterized by a substantial loss of bone mass and consequently increased risk of fractures. It affects four to six million Americans, especially women after menopause. Alcohol can interfere with calcium and bone metabolism in a number of ways. Acute alcohol consumption leads to transient decreases in parathyroid hormone, which helps to build bone, and increases urinary calcium excretion. So we're peeing out more of our calcium. And that results in overall loss of calcium from the body. Studies in alcoholics have also shown that alcohol is directly toxic to bone-forming cells and inhibits their activity. Chronic heavy drinking can disturb vitamin D metabolism, resulting in inadequate absorption of dietary calcium. And liver disease in heavy drinkers also affects bone metabolism. As with practically every area we've discussed, the data is mixed. While heavy alcohol intake definitely appears to predispose to both osteopenia and osteoporosis, as well as risk of falling, the biggest risk for fractures, which is falling, Moderate and light alcohol intake is associated with slightly increased bone mineral density in several studies, again, possibly due to maintaining those estrogen levels when they would otherwise be going down. Other studies, however, show few or no associations between moderate low alcohol intake and either fractures or bone density. We're going to talk more about bone health in another episode. But one thing you can do for yourself, in addition to regular exercise, especially weight-bearing exercise, calcium-rich foods, and taking a calcium supplement, especially as you get in your 40s and 50s, is to eliminate or at least reduce alcohol to no more than one to three drinks a week. And the good news is that studies have shown that even with alcohol-induced bone changes in alcoholics, 
including toxic bone effects. These are at least partially reversible with the cessation of drinking. Heavy drinking, on the other hand, is unequivocally problematic in menopause. It can wreak havoc on our bone health, our hormonal health, dramatically increase our risk of breast cancer, heart disease, liver disease, and osteoporosis, as well as our risk of dementia, all of which we're already at higher risk for after our estrogen or estradiol levels naturally decline in menopause. So it's incredibly important for our overall health span, not just our lifespan, but our our ability to live well as we live well into our 80s and 90s, to moderate alcohol consumption during and after menopause, finding other ways to relax in the evening and on the weekends, and to really observe the upper limits for moderate drinking as I've established for you in episode one of this two-part series. You can thank me later, even if you're grumbling at me now going, oh, she's telling me to drink less because you're going to have better sleep and better moods and better metabolism. And I'm going to have lots more to come for you in upcoming episodes on how to get better sleep in menopause and anytime. Let's talk about alcohol and breast cancer. Breast cancer. It's a scary set of two words. And the reality is that most of us will never experience it personally, although most of us will know someone in the course of our lifetime who does have breast cancer. But it is a major risk for women over our lifetime. And of course, we all want to do everything we can to reduce our risk. Not drinking alcohol is one of the biggest things that we can do, whether or not we have family risk of breast cancer, but especially if we do. The evidence is incontrovertible. Extremely large studies with collectively tens of thousands of women over 3 million person years published in respected medical journals like Journal of the American Medical Association, JAMA, Journal of the National Cancer Institute and the British Medical Journal, and the American Journal of Epidemiology show that alcohol intake has been definitively associated with increased risk of both estrogen receptor and progesterone receptor positive breast cancers, and that this risk is high still for individuals consuming as low as one to three drinks per week. It's also been associated that a history of episodic binge drinking amongst moderate drinkers, so the kind of thing where you drink a few drinks during the week, but then on the weekend you go, you know, full force on binging, that seems to confer higher risk as well. And then that risk goes up even more if you have a family member like a sister or mother with a history of breast cancer. The greatest risk is consistent with cumulative alcohol intake throughout our adult life, intake both in earlier and later adult life. But it's not just heavy drinking. Even one to three drinks per week does increase risk. And it's thought that for every 10 grams of alcohol consumed, the risk may be increased by anywhere from 4 to 13%. So that's a lot. All right. So you might be listening to this and really freaking out right now. And I'm sorry. I don't want you to freak out. I don't want to be like all Debbie Downer here. But I do want you to be aware that alcohol is the only regular food, if you will, or beverage that we consume that has actually been definitively associated with the risk of breast cancer. So if you binge drank in your teens or in your 20s or you moderately drank and then periodically you binge drank, you might be thinking, oh my God, I did all of that. What do I do now? Our bodies are extremely forgiving. And remember, most of the effects of alcohol that we've talked about, even in severe alcoholics, have been shown to be reversible when we stop drinking or cut back. I'm going to talk about folic acid and methylfolate before we wrap up today with this episode and how that can be protective 
and mitigate risks of history of exposure. So keep that in mind. And then you may be somebody who wants to be more mindful than the average bear of breast cancer screening when you get to that phase of life where screening becomes indicated. But there's no indication that a history of alcohol consumption is an indication for starting breast cancer screening early or any of that. So deep breath, exhale, and know that there are protective things that you can do. And that this is just sort of a wake up call that if you are drinking at that level to cut back. Now, if you have a family history of breast cancer, mother or sister, that's where the risk is most related, then you may want to consider whether drinking is a good idea for you on a regular basis. It doesn't mean you can't have a drink on your birthday or a drink on a holiday, but that one to three a week may still be too much for you if you have that predisposition. The mechanism of action of increased breast cancer risk with alcohol use includes alcohol's ability to increase estrogen and androgen levels. And again, remember that risk is even higher if you're taking the pill or hormone replacement therapy. And there's also increased risk of direct toxicity to the mammary tissue, to the breast tissue, due to DNA damage, altered gene expression, and methylation. And that's where the folate folic acid is going to come into play. Susceptibility to the breast cancer enhancing effects of alcohol may also be affected by other dietary factors like low folate intake, lifestyle habits like the use of hormone replacement therapy, or biological characteristics such as tumor hormone receptor status. A combination of alcohol and hormone therapy is an added risk. Per the nurse's health study, compared with women who neither took hormones nor drank alcohol, the risk of breast cancer was twofold higher in those who drank more than one alcoholic drink per day and used hormones for five or more years. So that combination. In short, there's no amount of alcohol that's considered safe or healthy when it comes to breast cancer prevention. So if you are at higher risk, I'd absolutely advise not drinking much at all. And again, there are ways you might be able to mitigate some of the risk to reduce the risk of other symptoms and conditions that we've talked about today, like endometriosis and PCOS, and to drink a bit more protectively for your overall health. So how do you do that? How do you protect yourself and support your hormone health if you do still want to enjoy a drink or two per week? Several things are clear. The amount, type, and timing definitely seems to make a difference, as does how often you drink. While doing the things I'm going to share with you doesn't compensate for drinking more than low to moderate amounts, nutritional status and lifestyle may make a difference in mitigating some of the risks of light to moderate drinking. While none of these tips completely eliminates the risk of heavy or even moderate drinking, they are smarter ways to drink and may offset some of the impact the next day and also long-term. These are not meant as carte blanche recommendations to now go get your drink on. They're meant to help support you and your optimal health if and when you do choose to imbibe and also to be made regular parts of your lifestyle if you drink one to three drinks a week or more. But these are also things you can do just if you're going to go out and have a few drinks with the girls or you know if it's a party or something like that. So first and foremost, eat food before you drink and stay well hydrated. It doesn't actually matter 
so much what you eat. Although I wouldn't eat anything that's super sugary or carby. I would eat some nuts or something with protein or eat a meal. But drinking alcohol after meals, so drink eating before you drink, reduces the peak alcohol blood values of ethanol due to delays in gastric absorption and emptying. So how much you absorb in your stomach. And the difference between drinking when you haven't eaten, when you've been fasting for even a couple of few hours, and when you have had some food is dramatic. It can cut your alcohol bioavailability by 65 to 70%. Doesn't mean you're not going to feel the pleasant effects of the alcohol. It means you're going to have a steadier, slower absorption, which also means you're going to drink less at that time because you're going to absorb it more slowly. You're going to enjoy it more and you're not going to feel the impact quite as much. Similarly, remember what I talked about blood alcohol concentration going up as our body fluid goes down in menopause. Same thing happens if you're dehydrated. So stay hydrated while you're drinking. Drink water or as you're going to hear me talk about in just a minute, drink sparkling water as part of your drink that you make. And so you're staying hydrated while you're consuming. Also, stick to clear alcohols. While it comes to alcohol risk, right, the risk of breast cancer, et cetera, et cetera, there really doesn't seem to be much difference in the types of alcohol one drinks. However, beer may be a slightly increased risk for fertility as there seems to be a higher level of beer drinking associated with the impact on ovulation and conception. But that may be due to the fact that beer is also typically more associated with cigarette smoking and lower nutritional intake. A few studies have shown, and many women will corroborate this, including myself, that clear alcohols like vodka, tequila, and gin have a lower impact on mood and sleep. It doesn't mean they don't impact it at all, and it doesn't mean it won't impact it for you. But try trading out the red wine for a small amount of vodka or tequila and see if that doesn't make a difference for you. Just whenever possible, steer toward one of those and just pay attention to whether it makes a difference. Now, toward what you're drinking, one thing I would absolutely recommend is avoiding mixed drinks. Mixed drinks come with a number of issues. One, they're loaded with sugar. So we're getting a sugar load when we drink them. That's not great for our blood sugar. We also tend to knock them back faster, right? Because they taste good and we want to knock them back and they're icy and they're refreshing. And so we drink them faster than we would, just something that was mixed, you know, just some vodka and sparkling water. And then we end up drinking more than we meant to. But also because we're drinking them faster, we also raise our blood alcohol level too fast. So probably many of you have had the experience where let's say you have a gin and tonic or vodka and sparkling water, you're going to drink it more slowly, you're going to sip it. Whereas with the, you know, that wonderful flavored special drink that you get or the mojito, you just drink it faster and you feel drunk much more quickly. So avoid mixed drinks altogether. Instead, consider making your own mixes. I love to have my patients shift from mixed drinks or those couple of glasses of wine to a full glass of sparkling water to which that one and a half ounces of vodka or tequila or other hard liquor has been added. And then a nice squeeze of lime or a quarter glass of unsweetened cranberry juice or grapefruit juice and make your own beautiful drink. It's delicious. It's wonderful. And one step further you can take is to actually dilute the amount of alcohol over a couple of drinks. So instead of having that one and a half ounces, which remember from the last episode is one serving of hard liquor, 
have the bartender split that, put it over two different drinks. So your first drink is half that amount and your second drink is half that amount. So now you're socially, you're holding a drink in your hand, you're enjoying sipping something back. It still gives you a buzz. And now you get two drinks out of one. It's also really important not to exceed guideline amounts at any one time. So remember, binge drinking is four drinks at a time. Keep it to two, keep it to three if you have to, but don't exceed into four drinks. And don't do that on the regular. Remember, seven drinks or more a week is more than seven drinks a week is heavy drinking. So think about how much have I had this week and how much am I having right now? But keeping to those guidelines is really important. Remember, limited alcohol use, that one to three drinks a week, for most people really doesn't increase risk other than that increased breast cancer potential. And moderate drinking is still considered to be safe and not alcohol use disorder for women. But then also keep in mind for yourself what your own parameters are. Now, I mentioned that I was going to share some things that you could do also to support your overall health to mitigate some of the risks. And one of those is to consider taking folic acid or methylfolate. One of the mechanisms of action of breast cancer, but also probably fertility impact, is thought to be the impact of alcohol and alcohol's toxic byproducts as it's being metabolized to its impact on methylation and gene regulation. And the risk is higher in those who are low in folate or folic acid, as many women are. In the Nurses Health Study, which was that study that included those 18,000 plus women, consumption of one or more drinks per day was associated with a non-significant 5% increase in the risk of breast cancer amongst women who consumed at least 300 micrograms of folic acid per day. By contrast, alcohol use was associated with a 32% increase in risk of breast cancer in those who were lower in folate. Taking folic acid or methylfolate may also partly mitigate, though not fully eliminate, breast cancer risk in those who drink. The Iowa Women's Health Study found that folate intake can modify the higher risk of breast cancer in females who drink alcohol, though this may be limited to estrogen receptor negative cancers for unclear reasons, probably because the estrogen is increased by the alcohol. So it's not helping in women who already have this predisposition to estrogen receptor positive. So the bottom line is totally safe to take folic acid and folate. Great to get more green vegetables in your diet. All of these things are protective for your mood, protective against anxiety and depression, helpful for ovulation and fertility, healthy ovum, and protective against breast cancer. So I would just say for all of us, just do it. Get those greens in your diet on a daily basis and consider a prenatal or multivitamin that has it in it. Another important thing to do is to nourish your gut and your microbiome. Studies do show that nutrition can modify alcohol-induced gut inflammation. And we know that healthy diet can quickly modify your gut microbial composition. And all of this can reverse systemic inflammation and damage as we're healing our gut. We're reducing overall systemic inflammation. You can learn to do this in my book, Hormone Intelligence, which has a complete plan for healing your gut, both leaky gut and microbiome. In my 28-Day Gut Reset, and in other podcasts and articles that I offer. So critical to what I do in my practice. In my practice, healing the gut is one of the first things I do with so many of my patients. And one little tip is if you are going to drink, consider some post-drink support. And there's an herb called milk thistle 
that has compounds in it called silymarin and other silibins that when taken after heavy alcohol consumption may help to protect or repair short-term alcohol damage to the liver cells. And if you've been a drinker or even moderate drinking, including some uh, milk thistle in your diet, it actually can be used kind of like flax seeds and ground up into your food can be helpful. Milk thistle is considered a hepatoprotective herb. But here's the key. It has to be taken after drinking if you're just using it as post-drinking support. If you're using it on a daily basis, you can just combine it in your foods. But if you're specifically trying to take silymarin, as a post-drink support, don't do it before drinking. It may actually even exacerbate the problem. But you can use it after drinking, either before going to bed or you know when you wake up the next morning. All right, so what's the bottom line? What is Dr. Aviva's bottom line on alcohol intake and our hormones? Alcohol has been shown in some studies to possibly, possibly have a small protective effect on a limited number of conditions, but it may be that other lifestyle factors in association with moderate drinking may be what's really more protective. Alcohol appears to have a largely negative effect on many aspects of women's health. Some of this varies by individual, some of it by age and hormonal life cycle, whether we're in puberty, our reproductive years, perimenopause and menopause, and some by amount and frequency of alcohol intake. But no alcohol is probably better than any alcohol. But light drinking, one to two servings of alcohol per week, and not necessarily every week, and true servings, not just a random big pour, is probably not going to significantly impact your health. Though any alcohol does somewhat increase breast cancer risk, and all alcohol should be avoided in pregnancy. Heavy drinking and binge drinking are absolutely risk factors for a wide range of chronic and preventable diseases and conditions, including breast cancer, diabetes, osteoporosis, heart disease, cognitive decline, and more. And lifestyle factors, including nutritional status, are critically important for all kinds of reasons, but may also impact and reduce your risk if you drink moderately or lightly. Look, my dear, no matter what your age, heavy drinking is just a bad idea. Binge drinking at any age can wreak havoc. And as we get older, we really need to consider how alcohol is affecting our well-being and our health. Even the guidelines for moderate drinking don't mitigate all risks. So if you're going to drink, keep it light. Keep it to the special occasion. Even if that's a glass of wine every Friday night or a G&T once in a while with a girlfriend. Awareness of how alcohol affects your personal well-being, how you feel, and reducing alcohol consumption overall can be a really important part of your overall vote in favor of your long-term health, hormonal, reproductive, and overall. And if you want to be sober, if you're sober curious, or you just want to quit, that's really cool too. And really, it's all about making the best decisions for you, which I hope this episode series has helped you to consider. Thank you for taking this journey with me. I'll see you with something new next time. So great to be here with you. I hope you enjoyed this episode, that it helped you to feel seen and heard, and perhaps that it even brought you some aha moments. Please share the love by sharing this with a friend or someone in your life who could benefit from the kinds of things we talk about in this space. Also, make sure to follow me on Instagram at dr.avivaram and go to avivaram.com to join the conversation about the show on my blog. While you're there, you can sign up for my free newsletter with tips on taking back your health. 
Be sure to leave a rating and a review for the podcast and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every week. Can't wait to see you next time.